Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage. I am Greg Gregory. We're excited today to bring to you another exciting guest to talk to us about teamwork, leadership, and, of course, organizational culture in some crazy, crazy times that we've got. Joining us today is a former NBA All-Star, Mark Eaton. Now, Mark is 7 feet 4 inches tall and a team-building expert. Today, he speaks in the same area as I do, working with teamwork, and he's considered a colleague, and we, we've talked over the years several times. Today, he's going to share with us and employ some principles of leadership that he learned during his career in the uh, NBA from 82 to 84, and uh, how we maybe transitioned a little bit to try and get things to the next level. I'm really anxious to learn more about his whole story, because while I've known him for a while, we've never talked about his story, about how he got started and how he got to the NBA, and we're just going to have a little bit of fun for the next few minutes. So, Sit back, join in, and enjoy the conversation. Mark, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Thank you, Greg. Great to be with you today. I'm excited about this because we've talked with some other people over the last few weeks in a couple of different sports, but I want to learn a little bit about you. So tell us about your story. Uh, I was uh, curious to read that you know you were 21 years old and you didn't have a job or something along those lines and how you got to the NBA. Well, uh, thanks, Greg. Uh, yeah, it's a rather unusual story. Uh, I grew up in Southern California and um, really wasn't that good at basketball in high school. Uh, I was very tall, growing quickly, pretty uncoordinated. And at the end of my high school career, there really wasn't anything else for me to do athletics-wise. I, I sat at the end of the bench um, on my team and never played. And uh, so I just decided it was time to go a different direction. I went to trade school, learned how to be an auto mechanic. I'd grown up in a uh, a home where my father was a marine diesel mechanic, so I'd grown up around engines and, and mm -hmm. wrenches and things like that. Uh, so I went to trade school for a year in Arizona, and then uh, I moved back to Southern California after that. And I was working in a tire store, uh, doing uh, front-end work, tune-ups, brakes, that kind of stuff. And so, um, uh, of course, everybody came in the shop seeing this seven-foot tall guy, and there was like, hey, why don't you play for the Lakers? And that used to really bother me. But uh, one day, a, a coach from a local junior college happened around the corner uh, when I was out there talking to a customer selling a brake job and uh, saw this big tall guy out there and pulled in and said the same thing as everybody else. Like, what are you doing? Why, you know, have you ever played basketball? And, and I was, of course, completely annoyed with him because I'm, I'm here to sell work. Like, if you want some work done and I can, I can fix your car, great. If not, I just don't really have the time for you. And, <laughs> you know, I was... I was 19 or 20 years old at this point in time and just really not uh, not that interested in talking to people about my height. It was a very uncomfortable subject for me. Uh, but anyway, he um, <clears throat> over a period of about two months, he continued to come back and talk to me about basketball. And, um, and I finally went out and worked out with him one day because he knew some things about playing basketball that I had never heard before about how to play bas basketball as a big guy down close to the basket and the specific basketball moves you would make near the basket that did not require a lot of dribbling, a terrible amount of coordination, but things you could still be effective with. And um, so I went out with him for an afternoon uh, for about a half an hour, and he showed me some of these things. Uh, and he said, look, if you want to give this basketball thing a try, and I've worked with some other big guys who've gone on to be successful, he said, I'll be here for you every afternoon, and we can go to the gym for a, a month or so and try it. 
And I said, well, okay. And so after work, uh, I'd go to the gym with him and we'd spend a couple of hours, you know, working on footwork and this, that, and the other thing. And, and uh, it was intriguing to me. And I probably, the most intriguing part of it was his commitment to me that he said, look, I'll be here for you every evening and help and show you what to do to work out. And uh, so after about four months of this, I had enough success and I felt like I was in some semblance of athletic shape that I decided to go back to junior college for one year. I kept my job as a mechanic in the morning and uh, play basketball and just see where it would go. Um, I attended night school. And uh, after a year of that, uh, I had enough success under his tutelage that it was time to get serious. And so I, I quit my job as a mechanic. I got a job selling cars and, uh, and worked for this and got through the second year of junior college and then ended up going to UCLA for two years after that. And that was kind of the beginning of my basketball career. But that's, that's how it started. I was, I was in a shop working on cars. And then we chatted for a minute about um, how um, you felt when you got drafted, okay? Uh, what did it feel like? What was, what was the feeling when you finally got drafted by the Utah Jazz? Well, um, there's a little background to that because when I was at UCLA, uh, even after having two really good years in junior college, I ended up sitting on the bench again. And so by the time the end of my senior year rolled around, I didn't think I had a future in basketball at all because this was pre-internet. The only way NBA teams found out about you was through these scouting services that would write these reports and then mm -hmm. put, them, put them in the mail to all the GMs around the league. So we had to get busy and figure out how to market myself. And my junior college coach and I um, literally got on the telephone and we cold called NBA teams. And we started with the worst teams thinking they'd have, they'd be the most likely to give an unknown guy a chance. And we called the Utah Jazz and they were, they were last place in the, in the league, last in uh, all the statistical categories. And uh, so when we called them on the phone, the coach and general manager, a guy named Frank Layden, uh, had never heard of me, but he said, you're seven feet tall. Well, send me a send me a highlight reel from college, you know. And of course, that was very brief from my days at UCLA. Uh, but he drafted me in the fourth round that year, and uh, which did not in any way guarantee a job. It was simply just an opportunity to come and try out at their training camp. Right. <clears throat> he came out and watched me play in a summer league in California, and said, "You know, I, I like what I see. I, you know, you're a little rough. You're you know, you need some work. But if you're willing to come to our training camp a month early." get on our weight training program and work with our coaches. I'll give you a chance to play for one year. And I had a friend who had just become an MBA agent and he negotiated a guaranteed salary for the first year of $45,000. And, um, and I came to the jazz in 1982 and I ended up staying for 12 years. Awesome. And what's interesting, are you noticing that extra sound? I'm just hearing a little background on my end. I apologize to everybody for that. Um, when you talked with you, the coach who got you started and everything, it was important to understand the role that you were going to play on that team as a big guy, being underneath. So let's talk a little bit about how understanding your role on that team led to your success in basketball, and then we're going to transfer that over to business. Well, uh, well, two things happened there. One is, yes, my junior college coach got me started with some, some simple basketball moves that I could execute successfully and taught me the basics of basketball. When I got to UCLA and things weren't going too well, uh, one summer afternoon, I was, I was working out at the men's gym at uh, UCLA, which is this old building in the 1920s. 
And all the great players in LA would show up every afternoon and play these pickup games or practice games against each other. And I was playing in these games and trying to figure it out. And, this, and the game had gotten so much faster and so much quicker. And I felt like I was always behind. I was always out of the play and just not quite there. And one afternoon, I was uh, really frustrated with that. And I was kind of taking a break and feeling a little, sor a little sorry for myself. And, and I feel this big, large hand on my shoulder. And I turn around, and it's Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, <laughs> he, he had retired from the NBA a few years earlier, but he still lived up above campus in Bel Air. And he would come down every afternoon and still work out with the young guys. I mean, even after retiring, he was still such a great athlete. He could still hoop with all of us. And so he grabbed me by the shoulder and he said, he's like, what are you doing out there? He goes, you're trying to chase all these players up and down the court. He goes, that's not your job. He said, come here, you know, let me just come with me for a minute. And he walked me out on the court and he put me right in front of the basket. And he said, now stand here. And he said, now you see that basket behind you? He goes, your job is to stop players from getting there. Your job is to make them miss their shot. Your job is to get the rebound and throw it up to the guard and let them go down the other end and score it. And your job is to kind of cruise up to half court and see what's going on. And it was this extraordinary experience because he took the whole mystery out of the game of basketball for me. As I went up in the ranks, I was, of course, you know, expected to be faster and quicker and dribble better and all these things. And he said, no, he goes, your job to help your team the most is to stand right here and play defense. He goes, that's something you can be great at. And uh, so I call that in my, in my presentation called knowing your job. What's that one thing you're excellent at, right? Right. But he, he just showed me what I could be successful at. And, and I listened and I, and I changed the whole focus of my game to defense and, um, and took that to a 12-year NBA career and breaking an NBA record and being a, you know, an all-star and everything else, simply because what he was willing to take five minutes out of his life and share with me you know, one hot summer afternoon in July at the, at the men's gym at UCLA. Um, so, um, so when I got to the NBA, my, I, don't, I said, I don't know what else I could do, how I could help a team, but I said, I know I can play defense. And the litmus test for me was um, about my second month in the league, we were playing the Dallas Mavericks down in Dallas and uh, they're an expansion team at that point. And the coach put me in the game and I blocked like uh, five shots in six minutes in the, in the beginning of the second quarter. And I remember after one of the block shots turning and looking over at the bench at the coaches while I was running back up the court and the coaches were nodding to each other. And I said, okay, I can do this job. And um, at that point in time, it just, you know, felt much more comfortable being out there. And I really set my sights on them, not only just being a, a player in the NBA, but seeing, but being somebody who could kind of leave their mark and defense, my role is what, you know, what did it for me. And that's, that's so true, as uh, both of us know in teamwork, it, when people focus in on their specific jobs and tasks and not worry about everybody else's job, it, it really starts to work. So let's talk about how did you make that transition from NBA All-Star into business and what did you do when you, when you first got out of, the, uh, out of playing? Oh boy, when I first got done playing, uh, I was in a world of hurt. My body was in pretty bad shape because I had just pushed myself beyond my limits uh, too many times. Um, and so I had the physical recovery to, to kind of deal with, which took a couple of years. And then it was like, what do you do now? You're used to doing one thing. I'd done one thing for 16 years, played basketball. And, um, and now it was like a wide open menu. Um, so uh, a very unique thing did occur to me, or showed up for me in that um, a neighbor, a guy moved in not too far from me uh, who owns some restaurants in San Francisco. 
And he approached me and he said, I'd like to do a restaurant in Salt Lake City. And I said, well, you know, athletes go together with restaurants like oil and water usually. <laughs> and he said, well, he goes, let me tell you my background. He said, I used to be the president of Budget Rent-A-Car. Um, and he sold, and he said, uh, how do you think I beat Hertz and Avis every day? I had a sharper pencil and I did it with less management. And he said, I, I come from a background of, of food and uh, I got it, I retired from budget and I got involved with these restaurants in San Francisco, which is one of the toughest markets in anywhere in the world to be successful. Really? And he said, I've got three restaurants going, they're all successful, they're highly rated, and I do it at a price that's very competitive. And he said, I'll be the majority partner, you, uh, you be the local presence, uh, you help us get through the governmental regulations and things like that. Um, and he said, I think, it, I think it can work. I'll bring my staff and management from San Francisco to open the place. Uh, you know, I'll be the executive manager. And um, so I said, you know, this was about an 18 month conversation, but I decided that, all right, this was, this was worth the risk. Once I went out and visited his restaurants and I saw the amazing food he had, the decor he had. And so we put a partnership together and uh, we found a, a restaurant. He wanted to be a, a neighborhood restaurant. He said, those will stand the test of time if they're done well. And we spent about a, a little over a year renovating this place and turning it into a Tuscan villa called Tuscany. Uh, Northern Italian food, and we've been in business for 24 years now and are still one of the top five or six highly rated restaurants in, in all of Utah. And uh, so it's been an interesting ride because you know you're only as good as your last meal and we've gone through managers and chefs and you know all kinds of things in 24 years. But um, it gave me something to focus on, which was very helpful in that transition process. And and I did other things too. I ran youth programs for at-risk kids and I got involved in broadcasting for a while, but the restaurant was really kind of the main focus. And, um, and, uh, and I've learned a lot in that time. So what were you able to bring from the MBA career in teamwork and leadership styles of what you observed? And what were you able to bring to Tuscany and be able to do? What do you, what do you think has been your, your, your success there? Well, it comes down to execution. And I think that's what happens in the NBA as well, is that uh, when things break down, there's always a lack of execution. Now, there's a variety of reasons for that based on the personnel you have, the guys on the court, the guys in the kitchen, et cetera. Um, but you have to be able to execute. And in the NBA, if you lose two or three games in a week, uh, you could be living in a new city the next week if you don't get things figured out, right? So you can't wait till the next board retreat or you know, next get together with the, with all the C-suite guys. It's like, you got to close the locker room door, kick out the coach sometimes and work out your differences and get back to being able to execute. And so I brought that to the, to the restaurant because again, it's, um, and my partner did the same because that was his background. It's like, you know, you only get one chance to make that first impression. And so we had a real strategy to how we opened the restaurant. We did like 20 meals the first day and 30 meals the next day. And we just kind of built up we didn't just throw open the doors and say, everybody come in because we wanted to ensure that each person had a great experience their first time through the doors. So um, I think that was the, that was one of the first things that stood out for me was that uh, the ability to execute, the ability to understand what excellence looked like. And he taught me a lot about how, what dishes should look like, what size should they be, how they should taste. Um, and I'm not a chef by any means, but I understand what a well-balanced, well-put-together plate looks like and uh, what it's supposed to taste like. And and that's been our, honestly, our saving grace in all these years is we have great food. Uh, and uh, a lot of other places have come and gone, and, and, uh, but we've, we've stood that test of time because of that commitment to excellence and, a, and that uh, a commitment to execution. Right, and of course, I didn't learn about Tuscany until we uh, had our conversation uh, 
about 10 days, two weeks ago. And first thing I did was reach out to my nephew who lives in Salt Lake City. And I said, have you ever heard of it? And the first words out of his mouth, of course, were, it's the best Italian restaurant in Salt Lake City. Of course I've heard of it. So that's always right. a good thing. So, Yeah, and the, and the litmus test there was also the food and not the owner, right? Because I brought the quote unquote celebrity you know, shadow to the, to the, to the business. But um, my proudest moment was when we got a review after we opened it and said, uh, food, not the owner is what drives customers to Tuscany. That's, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and so, because you know, you might come to a restaurant once because as a celebrity owner, but if the food sucks, then you're not going back. You're not and, going uh, back. Right. Well, so thank you for that. But, but food, but also I, I believe, and help me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, food is a big part of it, obviously the level of service they get and the level of teamwork that is in a food service business has to be extraordinary. It does. And it, it has to happen in the kitchen. It has to happen in the front of the house. And it, yeah, you have to have a well-run operation. And so I, I think I understood that too. And I think remember one of my first lessons I learned was, um, you know, I was very concerned about what all the employees were saying about this was going wrong or they needed that or whatever. And and while that was important, it was important to listen to them. I also understood like they needed to do their jobs. And um, so I kind of looked at it from a coach's standpoint of, of I'll listen to your concerns. I'll talk to you about what's going on, but then we have to execute and we have to execute well. And that was a, that was a, a learning curve for me because I was very concerned. I was more concerned about the, what the employees were saying than what the customers were saying for some reason. I don't know why. And uh, so I had, to, I had to learn that early on. Uh, but you do have to have that. And, um, and it can be a challenge. Every restaurant, you know, there's always an argument going between what's happening with the servers and what's happening in the kitchen, right? Yep. And they don't, always, they don't always play well with each other. And uh, so you constantly have meetings about that and, uh, and trying to smooth those things over. And there's, there's no magic bullet. It just takes uh, constant, consistent uh, reminders and communication and settling differences and working things out. Um, because if you let, let anything fester, it's going to become a problem. And what's going to suffer is the quality of the product. Right. right. And one of the things, uh, a restaurant that I frequent here in the uh, Maryland area, they will uh, do huddle meetings. So if there's a hiccup or something not right or something special taking place, any server can call a huddle meeting. And that meeting can last up to 90 seconds to bring everybody in so that the word gets dispersed quickly to make them function more as a team that particular evening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I've seen that. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in Las Vegas and there was a, a big restaurant at the, at the Paris hotel. And I happened to walk by and of course, being in the restaurant business, I pay very close attention to what's going on in restaurants. And they were having a big, it was a large restaurant. I mean, we're talking, you know, they probably had 25 servers and, um, and they had, they were having a big meeting with the front and the back of the house at about four o'clock before they're getting ready to open the doors, doing exactly that same thing. Mm -hmm. These are specials tonight. These are what we're doing. And we, we follow suit with that same thing of making sure that each night everybody knows what's expected of them. Yeah. In this case, though, they have that. But they also have where the servers can call their own little huddle meeting for a quick moment. They've got yeah. a situation with an allergy specialty going on at table 33, something like that. Yeah. So they can disperse it even on the fly, which it really ties into great teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, we preach that too. You just have to be there for each other. And if I'm busy and my food comes up and, and I can't get to it, then whoever's walking by the line picks that food up and goes. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, and that's the way it has to be. And, and uh, so yeah, so customer has, service is huge. So how has COVID-19 affected the restaurant business for you? 
Well, initially it was uh, it was very difficult for us when we, they shut everything down for about two months and we were just doing takeout food, although our key customers really helped us with that. I mean, we had people would come in, drive by four or five days a week to pick up food and leave giant tips for the staff. And um, so that was very nice to see. So, you know, our, our loyalty from 24 years of being in business really, really helped us through that time. And now we're back open and we have a large patio area. And so uh, that's helped us a lot because people that don't feel be in, comfortable being inside are much more comfortable outside. And so we really haven't had to quote unquote lose seats like a lot of restaurants do. At least we're, we're okay, at least till October. So everybody has to move inside. But um, <laughs> but right but right now, while it's outside, uh, we're in good shape. Okay, I've been saying this for a while now. Uh, everybody's talking about being able to eat outside. I said, that's all fine and dandy until we get to October, November time frame. Right. It'll be a whole and, new game then. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the leadership things and how how are you leading and what are you noticing as far as some of your clients and the styles and the ways they're leading people? Has it changed in the last several months because of the, uh, the viruses, the pandemic and all? Yeah, it has. Well, number one, we're not out you know, meeting one-on-one -on -one with our clients anymore. And, right. um, and then our teams have become virtual and that's created uh, challenges for leaders in terms of staying in touch. And like, you can't have that huddle you were talking about uh, unless you pull together a Zoom call real quick. So I think it's been a challenge for leaders to just stay connected, not only to their customers, but also to their team. And it's required, I think, more um, communication as opposed to less. And I have one client who's a large energy company up in the Dakotas, and um, they've got around, I think, 3,000 employees in a few different states. And they, I talked to him the other day, he says, he says actually our communication has improved since COVID because now we're required uh, to get on a phone call each morning with the CEO and the C-suite just to talk about what's new because things were changing in such a rapid pace. He said, as a result of that, the people in our satellite offices that don't get that much communication usually are really, uh, really tuned in now to, uh, to what's going on with the business. So we're seeing a lot of that. It's just, it's created some more challenges. And, uh, and then I think as the leaders themselves are, are just struggling sometimes to kind of keep it together because it's been moving so quickly and so fast. And, and you're not sure some days if you're making headway or not. That's definitely yeah. a, a challenge, yeah. no doubt about it. What would you say, as we get ready to try and wrap things up here, I like to try and keep the, uh, the our sessions to about 30 minutes because, well, pre-COVID, that was the average commute time in the country. Uh, with everybody working from home, that's a little changed now. But what are the key elements? What are, you, what are the core foundations for you uh, as far as teamwork and building a solid foundation with great core beliefs? Well, the program I do, which is based on my career, called the Four Commitments of a Winning Team, and it's it's what a couple of things we've already talked about, which is knowing your job and focusing on that one thing you're excellent at. Mm -hmm. and a lot of times we don't know what that is. We we need to ask people what it is that we really do well sometimes to find that out. But really making sure you're leveraging who you truly are, not not who you think you are. Right. Uh, and then secondly is execution, doing what you've been asked to do, making sure that you're doing what your boss wants, what the customer wants. And, and executing that at a 10 level. And then the, the last two are really about making other people look good, about really being there for your teammates and your customers and asking them, what can I do to help? How can I assist you further uh, as, and your teammates? And then, the, and then the last one is really about protecting each other. That, uh, that's one thing I think is missing in business today is that we're so busy kind of stepping on each other to get ahead 
uh, the good teams, the great teams are the ones that really commit themselves and by telling their teammates, hey, I got your back. And uh, I ask people in my presentations, you know, to write down the names of, of three people in any let know this week that, hey, I've got your back. So if you need to tell your spouse, I've got your back, that'd be a good thing to do today. Absolutely. And that's so true because in today's society, I've noticed more and more people are more focused about themselves inwardly. You know, you hold the door for somebody or you let somebody cross the street, they don't even say thank you. So there's, there's those types of things. Everybody, and I think part of that's pandemic and COVID related, yet we're all, we're all in this together as far as the pandemic part goes. And so being able to well, watch and take care of each other as far as we work together. And I do believe there's been a lot of people say they're more productive at work now and they're getting more things done and they're actually enjoying it more. And some of my, uh, my clients have said that their team members are much more engaged, which I'm finding fascinating because that was the yeah. biggest scare everybody went into this about. Yeah, it is. I've, I've, uh, I've heard that as well from one of my clients and some are even rethinking, why do I have this big office building? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when my people are just as, are more productive right. at home. Um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely changed the face of business and it's going to continue to evolve. Uh, but that, that basic decency and basic kindness to each other, I think, and especially in the, with all the rhetoric that's out in the, in the marketplace right now and on the media, I think is where it needs to start. And it needs to start with you. And, right, uh, right. Um, and if we do that, I think we'll get through this, we'll pull through and everything will be in much, we'll be in a much better situation. And so, um, you know, sometimes you need to turn off the news. I agree 100%. As we get ready to wrap things up, one question here. Who was your mentor as you started to get through the NBA and thinking about getting into business and after NBA? You have, is there anybody in particular that you aspired to, looked up to, whether official mentor or an unofficial mentor? Well, I, um, you know, I hired a coach uh, when I started to get into the speaking business. I mean, I had the mentor in the restaurant business, obviously. Mm -hmm. I, had my, I had my junior college coach that taught me how to play. He's become one of my best friends. Um, my coach, Frank Layden and Jerry Sloan that I played for. And then when I got into the, into the speaking business, I followed great speakers. I wanted to learn what they did and how they did it. And what I found out is a lot of them used to coach. And so I found a coach named uh, Lisa Yacobi who uh, helped me put together my presentation. And we spent about a year and a half working through the stories and putting them together. And it was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, but it paid dividends because once I started delivering it, uh, people were, you know, were like, wow, that was an amazing presentation. And can you come and talk to my company? And so I was glad I spent that time. And then all the people in NSA, you and I are both a member of that organization, mm -hmm. uh, were so kind. And I started going to conventions. They're like, how can I help you? And we talked about a few of them you know, before we started today. Uh, have been so great at saying, well, let me tell you about this, or why don't I show you how to do that, and how to position yourself, and how to market yourself, and how to perform well on stage, and how to follow up afterwards, and the basics of sales 101. So it was a, it was kind of like starting over as a rookie again in the NBA, um, but uh, all the people that came alongside of me were just so so great, and I tried to do the same thing for other people, and say, well, how, how can I help you? And, uh, well, that's, that's so strong, because I even talk about... Um, the spirit of Cabot, which for those who are not familiar with the National Speakers, was the founder of the National Speakers Association. And the belief that we have, and I think this is a belief that companies can carry forward, is instead of trying to get a bigger piece of the pie, if we just try to make our pie bigger. And if organizations would understand that, I think organizations can grow exponentially. So, 
Yeah, and I'm in agreement with you. And even in sales, where people have a tendency to be competitive with each other, I, I'm still a believer that if you help your fellow salespeople out, that uh, they'll reciprocate and, and everybody will be more successful. So, yeah. And, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Totally. Well, good luck with Tuscany. Good luck with uh, everything that you're involved with as far as your speaking career and your business. Uh, thanks for being a guest on the Teamwork Advantage, where we work with people about teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. And the one thing I always say, don't have a good day. Because having a good day is only having an average day. And if you're listening to this broadcast, you're not average. So to go out and make it a great day. Take care. Thanks right. again, Mark. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.